Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Choose Inclusion for our Black Voices Matter series. I'm here, as always, with my incredible co-hosts, UB and Michael. How are you boys doing? Uh, Michael, so I feel like I'm in trouble now, Nina. What did I do? <laughs> I'm, do I'm doing great. Well, to I'm be fair, for Black to be fair um, sorry, the background was playing. To be fair, Mike, you... Uh, uh, you did just shave this morning for the first time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now you, you got you got baby face again. That's yes, what I happens do. when you shave. <laughs> Get rid of that COVID beard, you become a baby. <laughs> so we're super excited for our guest today. We had um, several amazing talks with our guest today is Denise Hamilton. Uh, Denise is the founder of Watch Her Work. She's a nationally recognized diversity and inclusion leader specializing in ally training. So we're gonna dive into some really cool ways that she approaches the concepts of allyship and how do you talk about allyship in a really different way. And uh, I don't wanna do any spoilers, so I'm not gonna go into it. But first, I wanna just ask Denise, welcome. And how are you feeling today with everything going on in the world? I am so good. I'm feeling, um, you know, you'll hear a lot of this word from me is I'm feeling optimistic. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like good things are happening. Um, and I can't wait to share with you why I feel like that. Yeah. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your journey was that brought you to the work that you're doing today? Well, um, I started Watch Her Work to solve my own problem. I had been the only woman or the only African-American in so many different situations um, in corporate America. And um, because of that, I had become a kind of a lightning rod for mentees. Everybody wanted to take me to lunch, to pick my brain, and I could have had coffee 11 times a day. Um, so I you know, discussed it a little bit with some of my cohort, like other um, women leaders, and they were all complaining about the same thing. Like, you know, we're the tip of the spear. We didn't have time to see our own kids, let alone to be in charge of equality. And that felt wildly kind of inappropriate to me. And it just felt like there was a way to leverage technology to cross that to solve that problem and to cross that chasm. Um, so I literally started filming women. I just turned on the camera and started capturing their particular brand of genius. And now we've reached over 7,000 videos. Um, we've interviewed hundreds of um, executives, entrepreneurs, thought leaders. And the whole concept is you shouldn't have to have powerful friends to have powerful information. Um, and so women all over the, it used to be all over the country, now it's all over the world, are accessing this content um, and getting advice from everything from how do you ask for a raise to how do you tell your boss you're pregnant? What do you do if a client hits on you? All of those things. So um, I'm loving it. And it really expanded um, to discussions of race over the last year, um, um, where I really became, because I was trusted in the space of talking about women, corporate partners that I had established relationships over the years were like, hey, can you come in and help us with these, um, the racial topics? And I jumped at the opportunity because it's such an important issue and it's such a beautiful time of opportunity. Um, and so I'm really excited to be able to um, present and, and work with some of the largest companies in the world um, around issues of inclusion. 
Well, and I love one thing you said when we um, were all kind of, we're all talking on the intro call a few weeks ago. You talked. You said the second biggest enemy is language, and I think that's so. Like I, I think I've I've said that since since George Floyd's murder. You know, language matters, right? And so, t- can you talk about that a little bit? Like, is language how you describe it as, as inadequate given these conversations that we're having? Oh my gosh, it's woefully inadequate. I mean, let's really think about it, right? Inuits in the frozen tundra, they have 30 words for for snow, you know, an avalanche is really wildly different from a flurry. And uh, the difference can be life or death, right? Um, And they have this complicated vocabulary around ice and snow because ice and snow matters if you live in a frozen part of the world. Um, We have one word for racism. We use the same word for a Klansman burning a cross on my lawn as we do for a guidance counselor that tells all the Black kids not to apply to those hard schools because they're probably not going to get in, right? Both are racist, but they're not the same. And the, the imprecise nature of our language makes these conversations almost impossible because I may legitimately be doing something that is racist, that is harmful to another group of people, but it doesn't mean I'm a Klansman. It doesn't mean I'm a, you know, a a skinhead. And and we have to find a more precise language and, and find the ability to talk about these things in a way that's effective. So if I, um, you know, use the phrase white privilege, for example, if I've got 45 minutes for a conversation and I use the term white privilege, I'll spend 35 minutes, you know, discussing that term, but never the concepts that undergird it. So I think that we have to understand how we're all triggered by language and that if we're wanting to really communicate about these things, we have to break it down to to concepts that people really understand. Um, Let me give you an example. Um, Often I'll go to audiences and I'll say there are um, in the cannabis industry is largely run by white men. I mean, 98 percent white men run the cannabis industry. Raise your hand if you think the guys that run that industry never smoked weed until it was legal. Of course, everyone starts laughing because of course they were smoking weed. They were experts in weed. That's why they were able to move into the marijuana business. Um, I said, but isn't it interesting that one group loses their educational opportunities they lose their professional opportunities, they lose their freedom. And another group does the same exact behavior and goes on to make millions. Every person in that room knows exactly what I'm talking about. I've never used the phrase white privilege, but that's what I'm talking about. And I just personally find it to be way more effective to give people a sense of what I'm talking about and to help them to understand the concepts and to build empathy with that experience. Um, A practice that I always try to utilize is I always switch the nouns, you know, change the story just a little bit and put yourself in that story and imagine how you would want to be treated. Imagine how that would impact you. And all of a sudden people get all this clarity 
<laughs> I remember when um, we were planning a national tour. This was before COVID. We were planning a national tour, uh, myself and, a, and another, um, a, a white woman who speaks in uh, in activism and inclusion in a kind of a different way. We were planning a national tour and we were having this call with the team about what we can do um, as we go from city to city. And I made the crazy suggestion. I said, let's do a stop and frisk. And the, the whole call went dead, went quiet. They were like, what do you mean? I said, why don't we have an officer come in, pull a white woman out of the audience, go through her pockets, take her purse, dump it out onto the ground, push her against the wall, hold her there, yell at her, and then find nothing, tell her to go back and sit down and leave. And they were mortified. Denise, we could never do that. That would be horrible. I don't even, how could you suggest something like that? And I was so struck because that happened to my brothers multiple times a week for years. Years. Stop and frisk was a common practice. So you understand it when it's you. So then how come you can't understand it when it's someone else? Have you ever seen a movie about Wall Street that didn't have cocaine mentioned? I dare say none of us have. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> no one has seen. Yet, they don't do stop and frisk on Wall Street. I thought we were trying to stop drugs. Right? So it's like I, I try to really lay out common sense applications and trigger people's inherent fairness. I ascribe good intent and try to find a way forward because one of the things we're going to have to figure out a way to do is we have to let people grow. We have to let them mature. Yes, there are some people in this country that are at zero or at one on these issues, but how are they ever going to get to three or four or five if we don't let them? We have to create a path. So one of the commitments for me is defanging the language and, and, and like finding the knob at the back of these conversations and turning them down so that we can actually listen to each other. We can actually hear and empathize and create more understanding. Denise, I can listen to you all day. And I know very soon I'm going to have an opportunity with an upcoming book. And I hope, hope, hope you have chapter upon chapter of, of these kind of examples. And more importantly, you gave me a little teaser that you will give uh, uh, me, the, the selfish blind guy here, a, uh, the audio version of this, because I, I, could, I could listen to you read the phone book and I want to <laughs> hear, hear you read these concepts to me. So can you talk to us a little bit about your upcoming book? Yes, um, thank you so much. It's called um, Do Something. An Ally's Guide to Changing Themselves So They Can Change the World. Um, there was, after George Floyd's murder, um, there were so many people that I thought of as truly sincere in wanting to see a change, wanting to do something about this. And I was struck by how few people felt equipped they didn't feel like they knew what to do. They were afraid. I mean, fear is such a big piece of this, either fear of like doing the wrong thing, fear of their efforts not being received well, 
fear of seeming performative. Like there was so much fear. There was um, this issue of language that I just spoke about. And then there was a basic issue of ignorance, right? Like one of the the most dangerous things in the world is a a well-intended person who doesn't know what they're doing. Right. Um, coming into situations like you didn't need to start your own nonprofit. There are 20 nonprofits that already do that function. Get behind and support people that have been in the space for years. You don't have to come up with new initiatives on how to address police brutality. There are people that have been working on these issues for years. Lean into their work. Even something as simple as I would do presentations around um, uh systemic racism. And at the end, people would say, can you suggest books to read or podcasts I should listen to? And I said, no. And everybody would like, wait, what do you mean? No. I said, no. If you wanted a pair of lime green Tory Burch sandals, it'd be at your house by Saturday morning. You would get online and you would invest the time and you would figure it out. I'm not talking about some alien, distant history. This is American history. And unfortunately, we know more about Auschwitz than we do about Tulsa. But all of that information is at our fingertips. What I want to cultivate in people is not um, a, a baby bird syndrome where they're waiting for someone to come along and feed them information. I want to teach them to take that little supercomputer that's sitting in their pocket and have the in. The, the desire and the energy, and I guess the personal integrity to seek these things out for themselves, to research them for themselves. You don't have to rely on what I say. Dig it up for yourself. Have a, a sincerity and an interest. And I think that's, you know, I, I say that it's easier said than done. Sometimes I know that, but I think the effort that we put behind it matters. Um, I'll give you a really great example. Um, I love to talk about George Washington's teeth. Um, George Washington, um, if you are of a certain age, like us us oldies but goodies, um, we were raised that George Washington, when he's a kid, he cut down a cherry tree and he was honest about it. We all were told that story. And then we were also told that his teeth were made of wood. And I was always fascinated by that because I'm like, who cares? Why did they tell us that? Like, like, why was that an issue? But then as I did my research, I found out that, nope, his teeth were not made of wood. They were made of two materials, ivory from rhinoceros and elephants and human teeth, largely slave teeth. He was pulling teeth from slaves to make his dentures. And they believe he had upwards of 12 sets of dentures. So you do the math of how many teeth that is, right? So I always thought, why did they lie to us about that? What an odd thing to lie about. And when I shared this concept with audiences, I challenged them to say, what else were you lied to about? Maybe your assumptions about um, the criminality of Black people or who does drugs in America or this idea that we think of someone who steals, you know, an apple off of a fruit stand as a monster, but somebody who destroys a financial system and causes hundreds of thousands of people to lose their homes, you know, doesn't spend a day in jail. Like these are narratives that are shaped And what I want people to do is to challenge those narratives, is to find the courage to challenge their own stories. We have stories that we have been fed over years and years and years. And, you know, who are we without our stories? 
right? It, it's hard. We lose our, we lose our way. We lose, we, we kind of lose our, our structure when those stories fail, fall away. And so I want to challenge people to explore that for themselves and to figure out like, is this true? Is it really true? If you if you um, defund education and you create a substandard educational system for a group of people and then say they're not smart, they're not intelligent, they can't succeed. I don't know that like wh- what came first, the chicken or the egg and, and challenge people to ask themselves that question. Um, one of my favorite questions in the book is. Um, you know, do you want an equal criminal justice system? And I'm sure everyone would say, absolutely. I I definitely want an equal criminal justice system. But then if I ask them 10 minutes later, if your son was arrested for a crime he committed, would you use everything in your power to get him out of jail? And most people say yes. Well, that means by definition, you don't want an equal criminal justice system. You want a criminal justice system that you can manipulate using power and influence and leverage, wealth. Like you don't really want it to be fair because if it was fair, when people committed a crime, they would go to jail. Those are the things that we have to explore in ourselves, that we have to look at in our in our own hearts of when we say we want equality, when we say we want fairness, what does it actually look like? What does it actually feel like? And what would the experience be? And what would I have to give up to, to accomplish that? So that's what I hope the book does, that it triggers people um, to, to kind of lean inside instead of um, so many discussions are had, you know, with people outside of our bodies, right? We're, we're talking and, and reflecting upon what should happen next and how things should go. I really want to push people inside to look at what they're doing, and then they can be the most incredible and the most effective allies because they've done the work. I, I'm so, I can totally see why you're called the white guy whisperer, Denise. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you are getting into their heads and speaking to them in terms and a language that they can understand and, and moving their hearts and minds into a totally different direction. It's so powerful what you're doing. And it, you know, I do want to talk about like, how does this segue into allyship? I mean, one of those things that you hear from, from white people is that, you know, allyship or even for anyone, allyship is a hard thing to do and there's a price to pay for allyship and all of that stuff. What are your, what are your thoughts on all that? I mean, I think I take an all hands approach. One of the biggest challenges that we have is that we've made, you know, um, these issues of whether it be racism or sexism or anti-Semitism or homophobia, we've made it the issue that belongs to that group. It belongs to all of us, right? As if we're a part, if I guess I want to reclaim the word patriot. And and if you love America, you have to love Americans, right? I would think that's how that works. So for me, um, being an, an ally is craving fairness and equity, is is advocating actively for the kind of environment you want for your children going forward or the kind of world that you want to see in place. Um, And it it feels like we have kind of left a lot of people out of that 
conversation. We just left them out. And I, I want to bring them in. I want all hands on deck. Everybody grab a, a corner of this elephant and let's lift it. Um, but it, because if we take the approach that, you know, it's my job to educate people about racism or it's, you know, someone else's job to educate people about anti-Semitism, like, no, it's my job as an American to learn my own history and to learn the damaging effects of decisions that my government have made. Just the way I learn about all the victories, I need to learn about the challenges, right? And, and what are the consequences of that? And then what can I do to be helpful? Right. And I think there's this mythology we've built around allyship that it has to be big, sweeping generalizations, like these activities that are just massive. And I don't think they do. I just I don't think that's what it means. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick example. Um, when I worked in commercial real estate, I was the first black person in the top 10 commercial real estate con companies in a six state region ridiculous, Rid absolutely ridiculous, right? So super, super um, uh, white dominated industry. And I remember sitting, I sat in a cubicle pod with five other white guys. And one of the um, executive vice presidents came out of his office and literally invited every single person around me to lunch and left me sitting there. Now, you can imagine how I felt, right? I always felt like an outsider. I always felt excluded. And it was, it was a pretty harsh, hurtful thing. But I'll tell you what was more hurtful. As the, as the guys were all walking out, following um, the EVP out of the office, one of the guys looked back at me. And he, you could tell he felt it. He knew that it was the wrong thing to do. He knew that it was cruel. He knew that it hurt my feelings. Imagine if he had mustered up the courage to say, hey, Denise, do you want to come? Hey, EVP, can Denise come? Like that small gesture. He's the junior of the junior of the junior. But he had the power to act in the way that his heart was obviously telling him to act. That's allyship. Those millions of moments every single day that you have in your power to make someone else's experience a little bit better, to create a welcoming environment in a sea of shorthand, right? And when I see a sea of shorthand, what I mean is when we have shared cultural backgrounds, shared experiences. We have a shared language. You know, I don't have to um, use a thousand words. It's like, it's like um, $25,000 pyramid. I don't know who's old enough to remember that show, but you oh, know, heck it's, yeah. it's giving, it's giving a few phrases to get someone to say a word or like taboo. My, my daughter and I are not allowed in my family. We're not allowed to be on the same team because we literally can get every word into, into words, right? Because we have a shorthand, because we have a shared experience, right? And when you introduce someone who's different, they don't have those shared experiences. They don't have the same holiday experiences. They don't watch the same sports. They don't, they don't have the same um, shorthand, right? And so in a lot of ways, we have to figure out like, and find the courage to give up a little bit of comfort. We're just going to have to give up a little bit of shorthand to let people um, 
to really create a space that people feel welcome and feel included. It does, you don't have to be the CEO of the company to impact inclusion or to be an ally. You can be the lowest person on the totem pole, but if you care about people and you're sincere about creating a welcoming environment, you can absolutely make a difference. Well, and I think what's interesting kind of on the flip side of, of that is that, um, you know, the, the, those different people, those more the diverse people who, you know, don't look like us, who come into the workplace, for example, you know, there, there actually may be more in common than we think. And, and so the flip side is that maybe we've actually had the same holiday experiences, you know, or, or, but, but without, you know, asking questions, right. Or taking the time to get to know that person we'll always see the one piece of criteria that divides us, which is skin color or gender. Um, and, and so that's why I think, you know, God, everything you're talking about, I mean, this is like a very much an internal individual thing that everybody needs to go to go through, right? Like, it, cause you, you'd said, you know, we're, we're, we're all essentially right now undergoing chemo <laughs> in a sense, um, you know, and, and not to minimize that, but we are all going through this thing, um, uh, this, this division, these conversations. Uh, and, and it, it, you know, I think to get to the other side, to your point, we, we've got to go through this internal struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, of yeah. understanding and because what are we going to do like you said this earlier like the, the next week right the election what do we have to do post-election <laughs> <laughs> lobotomies i don't I mean. know <laughs> um gosh i mean we have to like remember how to love each other we remember we have to remember how to interact and respect with each, respect each other and that we, that's a lost art you know i was talking to um a friend of mine and um she asked me to share her pitch deck she's got a company and she asked her to me to share her pitch deck with um, people that I know in Houston, other high net worth individuals that might want to invest in her company. And so she sends me a deck and the deck says, um, you know, it describes Houston as a flyover city. And I called her and I said, do you really want me to send something asking people to give you money when you've described where they live as irrelevant and someplace you fly over to get to the important cities. And she was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean any harm. And I didn't. And, 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 and I share that example because I think that we're all going to have to reevaluate our language, how we talk about each other, how we talk to each other, how we're willing to call the other side dumb and ignorant and stupid. And we, we, our whole discourse has, has degraded into this whole, um, this constant deriding of each other. And we're going to have to figure out how to meet in the middle and come back together. I totally agree. Uh, Denise, I, so looking forward to your book. I, um, one of the, on a pre-call, like I'm, I'm a big fan of, again, I've been blind since I was a small boy, that sort of thing. And 
Um, sometimes I have dark days and it has nothing to do with my eyesight. It, you know, it's, it's an internal struggle, but how I, 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 you know, pull myself up, uh, you know, I have triggers. I then have activities I, I work on, but I, I generally like my, my cup isn't generally, you know, half full. It's generally three quarters full. Like I really focus on optimism. I'm very optimistic that, what I what I do from an organization perspective is going to help people with disabilities find employment. I'm very optimistic that um, people with disabilities will be <laughs> treated um, uh, with dignity and ability and, and that sort of thing. So, but I I would love to hear more of that conversation and how you um, how you approach organizations. You said you work with a lot of very conservative type organizations, and you lead with optimism. Can you talk more about that? Absolutely. I think it's the key. The only people that can change the world are the ones that think they can, period. There's no, <laughs> there, there's no mitigation to that. And I don't know how we're going to fix such a big problem that is such a long problem, that is such a multifaceted, multi-pronged problem, if we're not optimistic, right? I think about like the incredible crazy optimism it took to put a man in a tin can and send them to space using a computer that isn't even as sophisticated as the ones we have in our phone in our in our pockets right now i mean that's crazy why did they think they could do that right and they spent years figuring it out um but they were able to accomplish it i think that these conversations are so fraught with pessimism they're so shaped by what's never going to happen and how it's never going to get any better. Um, I never thought I would have a black president in my lifetime. I never thought I would see marriage equality in my lifetime. There have been extreme changes. And I think that we have been, I don't know, almost trained, almost socialized as we doom scroll Twitter um, to look for all the failures and what we haven't accomplished instead of building upon the things that we have. So I believe that going into these um, going into these conversations, ascribing good intent and giving people a path out, right? We can't, we can't leave everybody at zero and one. If we can get them to three or four on their journey, I'm here for that. And we have to believe that it's a, it's a journey. People are moving along a continuum. I'm still growing. I'm still learning things about the trans community. And I'm still learning things about how to approach indigenous cultures that I haven't been exposed to, right? So, so if, if I can be on a continuum of growth, I have to let other people be on a continuum of growth as well. I have to, or else there's no other path out of this, right? So I have to love people enough to be patient with them and to listen to what their concerns are. You know, one fact um, that I think people don't really think about is the, the fact that, that even, even white men have trouble. <laughs> we don't talk about that a lot. If you look at the suicide rate in America, really in the world, American white men have among the highest suicide rates in the world. In the United States, upwards of almost 80% of middle-aged white men. What's that about? Do we care about that? Or do we not care about that because it's not a person of color or not, it's not a woman, right? We have to care about all people. 
And we have to figure out ways to address the challenges that are facing all of us. And that means listening to each other, respecting each other, and giving each other a chance to grow. And that requires a deep optimism. I personally am passing out pom-poms and um, foghorns. Like, let's do it. Let's believe that we can solve this big problem. We can do hard things. We can. We are a people that can do hard things. So let's start believing that. And I think maybe then it'll happen. I think we're all uh, <laughs> speechless. Like that was. Yep. Can we just say wow? Like yes. I mean that was, yeah, that was just. Um, I would love to do a twenty-part series with you every single month, Denise. <laughs> I am, like I just I'm uh, so honored to be part of this podcast with you today and um the the words you speak like i'd I'd say i want you to run for politics but Uh -uh. selfishly um yeah i just i I just don't feel like uh dc deserves you like i just um (laughs) just saying just saying (laughs) no totally Totally. Yeah, I like to be a part of systems that incentivize finding common ground (laughs) not Mm -hmm. discourage it yeah exactly exactly i agree well, Denise, uh, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, this, yeah, this really was incredible. Thank you for trusting us uh, with your voice um, and just, you know, coming on to share, share what's going on and uh, share everything that you're about. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me and for creating this platform and sharing voices. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who have really loud, angry voices. And um, the, the way our, our culture and our society is set up right now is, you know, hate goes viral in a, a millisecond. But patience, understanding, love, common ground, it, it's a little bit of a slower slower journey around the globe. So thank you for creating a space that amplifies positivity and puts those messages out. Um, And I hope that people listening will share them and amplify what you guys are doing. Mm. I'm super touched by that. I'm very humbled. Thank you so much, Denise. And thank you to all our listeners. And uh, please continue um, to listen. Uh, UB, take it away. Yeah, no, thank you, Mike. Yeah, just chooseinclusion.com, several other platforms, and we're going to keep doing this and please go vote. So thank you all so much. We'll, um, we'll talk to you soon.